Hey, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, folks. It's the one and only V, the Grill Economist. We have with us the man of the hour who needs no introduction. It is Matthew Eric himself. You can find him over at the CanadianPatriot.org as well as the RisingTideFoundation.net as well as his book and his Substack. All the information is linked to you directly in the description box. And with that being said, Monsieur Eret, c'est la vie. Bonsoir. Hey, salut, How mon ami. Salut, V. How are you doing? <laughs> good, good, good. I Bro. figured today is an important show and why we're talking about Tiananmen Square, because it really is the rubric. It's the framework. It's the it's really is a, the philosopher's stone, so to speak, in order to understand how color revolutions operate, how the fusion, because it really was the first real fusion on a grand sense between NGOs and intelligence agencies. So this is going to help you understand the Maidan in Ukraine, help you understand the shenanigans that are happening right now in Taiwan, help you understand all the shenanigans that have occurred in Africa and Southeast Asia, so on and so forth. So get your thinking caps on, have your notebooks ready, get your coffee. We're about to get into it. Go ahead, Matt. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we, we are slowly coming up to uh, the anniversary. June 4th has become sort of a sacred cow anniversary of uh, Tiananmen Square, the, the so-called massacre where thousands of peaceful protesters, students mostly were massacred by the evil Chinese CPC commies that brutally destroyed those freedom, democracy loving young people who only wanted a little slice of, of capitalism. That's all they wanted. And they were killed bloodbath. That's the story at least. And you know, every year um, it's the, the, the roots of this have sunk deeper and deeper into the zeitgeist. And as we are going to go through today in a slightly more formal than usual setting, because I really wanted a, a, a sort of solid reference place for people to refer back to, to study, to follow the leads up that I'm going to go through. I'm, I, I prepared about 35 slides. Um, I was originally requested to do this um, from my friend in South Africa, Jeremy, um, who has a show called Germ Warfare. And uh, I think it went, it, it's a pretty important slideshow. So I wanted to do this here in this platform right now. Um, and uh, what I'll do, let me just try my little experiment with my slides, and then we'll uh, get onto it. Uh, share screen. All right. So I'm guessing you could see. Uh... Bingo. There we go. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, you guys, what do you what do you see right now, V? Just to make sure. That you're uh, really I right see. Mrs. Morgan had made it very clear. You have that slide uh, pulled up. If you want to blow up the side, you can okay. go ahead and blow, blow right. up the side. So you're you're seeing uh, you're seeing Miles Guo. Miles uh, Gao. Oh yeah, Mister. Yeah, Miles Guo with uh, Connie Morgan, the heiress yeah. of the Morgan dynasty. That's what you're seeing right now, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. And I guess you know it's an accident that we're ending. At, we're beginning at the end here. This is the last slide, so this is a bit of the punchline, but it's a it's a fine place to start. So. This is um, a recent memorial two years ago, or no, last year, um, for the Tiananmen Square Massacre, hosted as sort of a fundraiser on one of uh, Miles Guo's pl uh, platforms, media platforms, which was overseen by one of his sponsors, uh, Connie Morgan, as I mentioned, heiress of the Morgan family fortune. And in it, I selected a little quote from this interview 
where uh, Miles Guo, the bankroller of Steve Bannon's operation, the war room, and a lot of other things, uh, s- states and recapitulates some of the points that Connie had gone through regarding her defense of J.P. Morgan. And Miles says, you know, Mrs. Morgan has made it very clear. There were no stakeholders from Morgan family in Federal Reserve, nor did they get involved with the deep state. So this is rumor. Morgan family is real patriots for America. What the Aha. hell? Okay. <laughs> James Piedmont Morgan was not in, has nothing to do with the Federal Reserve. No, not at all, not at all. That's a that's a that's a mythology that they're debunking for the real conservative patriots that want to really understand how the Chinese are actually the big bad guys who have taken over control of America, of Canada, of the free West. It's the Chinese you have to hate, not J.P. Morgan. They are patriots for America. So all that to say, Miles Guo is somebody who not only escaped arrest as a billionaire in China, one of the leading uh, official operators of a big chunk of the deep state operation, which was always tied to an operation that we're going to become, we're going to come to see that was that was organized by the CIA, by Soros front groups, um, which has overthrown an elect, basically that derailed um, a certain election process in the United States. I think this is streaming to YouTube, so I'm not going to say too much on that, but I think people know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, he is also somebody who came to prominence as a young organizer of what became the Tiananmen Square operation that begun in, was begun in April of 20 of 1989. He was put in prison for his role in inflaming, turning a, a what was a peaceful protest at, at the beginning into a violent operation for regime change against the Chinese government. Um, he was put in prison for two years, and there was something that was maintained in a very powerful way inside of China that was not purged, although a lot of this deep state operation was purged, something was not. And it's only now that we see an extraction, a battle between Xi Jinping and the patriots of China against this foreign directed operation centered in Shanghai amongst the billionaire class, which is very tightly enmeshed with Davos connected um, fanatics like Jack Ma, World Economic Forum trustee, tied to this operation. This guy, Miles Guo, is a, a deep part of this operation. We're going to see a lot more about that. But this is the end of it, and we're going to we're going to see how this ties it all together. So let's go for a uh, – no, before actually I do this full screen, let's just go to the beginning, beginning. Um, all right. So right there, what you see and is a quick screenshot of the events leading up to the June 4th, 1989 uh, developments. Give me democracy or give me death. Patrick Henry quote from the American Revolution uh, held by students at Tiananmen Square. American flags, British flags, Statue of Liberty, mock-ups being paraded about for about two months. Um, Interesting thing, interesting process that was going on. Um, Obviously, it's very charming for American, especially American conservatives and people who tend to be a little bit more right-leaning. Uh, who obviously smell the the ugliness of wokeism of the trans uh, the gender fluid transhumanist agenda people who who naturally morally see the corruption in that tend to be very charmed nonetheless by these sorts of images they tend to see and i i believe for many years this famous image of the young you know the young man doing groceries standing up and facing down the chinese tanks at tiananmen square I believed, I don't know how many other people watching this believe this, but for years I had believed that uh, he died 
<laughs> I, don't, I know many people I, I've spoken to believe that he was run over by the tanks in his defense of freedom for the Chinese. Um, one of the things I had also thought that thousands, maybe 10,000 or more people had died in Tiananmen Square up until somewhat recently. That's what I believed. And that I, I know is a big part of the, the sacred cow mythology that's been cooked up. We're going to, again, debunk some of that. Same here, man. I, I heard the whole 10,000 people died. The guy was run over, yep. squished by the tank treads. The whole thing. It was it was it was insane. Yeah, yeah I believe I mean, that too. really. I mean, it's traumatizing for for somebody to think about this, especially young people, you know, don't know much about how geopolitics works, that, that this is the this is what happened. Now, there's actually video footage of this event. And uh, I don't have the video on me, but I, <laughs> I I wanted to just stick with the PowerPoint and not only flipping back and forth. But people can actually Google and find easily the video of this entire event. And what happens afterwards is not something shown by to a Western audience very much. But really what happens is this guy climbs onto one, that tank he's staring down, yells at the, uh, the guy inside the tank for about 30 seconds, gets a little bored, walks off the tank, and walks away. That's 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 how this thing plays out. <laughs> that's what that was the fate of the guy carrying groceries. Terrible fate. Just terrible. Terrible, terrible fate. Yeah. So, um, what are some of these, some samples? I mean, up until recently, most people didn't even know how to think about the term color revolutions. I think that nowadays more people have have been forced to familiarize themselves with these this technique of modern regime change. Um, let's look at some samples. Um, and talk about that. So, I mean, the most famous one, the most important one is what happened in Ukraine in uh, beginning in November of 2013 and culminating in the overthrow of the elected government of Yanukovych in February of 2014, overseen by Victoria Nuland, Joe Biden, the U.S. State Department operating through front groups like USAID, National Endowment for Democracy, um, that had promoted and invested in uh, anti-government media platforms, uh, activists, and as we discovered increasingly, very violent provocateurs who were deployed to throw Molotov cocktails, burn um, police who were not even allowed to carry guns with them as they were deployed to, to try to, you know, uh, disperse the protesters at the Maidan, burn them alive. And on top of it, you know, we've increasingly, uh, studies have been produced that have demonstrated that there were shooters positioned above certain government buildings overseeing, not even government buildings, but um, union-affiliated buildings overseeing the Maidan that were shooting at both police and protesters alike. Protesters who were just useful idiots who didn't know how or why they were they were being corralled. They just wanted a better economic life. Obviously, the economic situation in Ukraine was destroyed under 30 years of IMF conditionalities. It really wrecked the living standards of what was once one of the best economies of Eastern Europe under the Soviet period, turned into the lowest quality of life, lowest standards of living, highest rates of corruption in a controlled way. It wasn't an accident. So obviously people living in that economic despair wanted some reforms, legitimately so. And this is how these sorts of color revolutions always work. One of the characteristics that we saw not only was massive violence in this overthrow that Victoria Newland bragged the U.S. government had spent $5 billion in managing, but you saw a lot of American flags, a lot of British flags, a lot of NATO flags associating NATO, the USA, the integration with the United States and with the transatlantic European order as being equivalent to freedom, something we also saw at Tiananmen Square. We're going to see more of that. Another example, more recent or a little 
more recently than the 2014 uh, Ukraine protest was the Hong Kong protests. Again, National Endowment for Democracy funded. Um, these are some samples of pictures taken of fires on the streets. These were not peaceful protests. I was actually there in September with Cynthia for a conference and we got to see firsthand the American and British flags and the violence, the, the lighting on fire of government buildings. We've seen videos of uh, citizens who that are anti-protest getting lit on fire by these radical idiot um, tools who yeah. are being deployed to overthrow their own government. Shipped in from Taiwan with elements of the triad. Yeah, and he even had some uh, samples of Kievan uh, Nazis who were also brought in too, which is interesting. Um, and yeah, the triad played a big role. Um, and again, liberate Hong Kong, begging the U.S. to come in and militarily liberate Hong Kong, just like we see with a lot of those fools in Taiwan also put into power um, by, the, by the West, who are calling for the West to come in militarily to liberate Taiwan from the big bad Chinese. Same model to a T. Um, these are another more samples of these masked kids. Uh, don't want, they obviously mostly don't want their faces shown for obvious reasons that they're participating in violent acts of disruption and they know it. So, you know, look at, look at the British flags. <laughs> oh yeah. The British and the American flags are the dead ringer. And most Americans are like, because they're so uh, in this informational uh, iron curtain that, that, that the media, that the U S media has put on them are thinking that they're, they're like fighting against some communist regime. The whole extradition act is pretty interesting for for Hong Kong itself, which I guess maybe later on we can get into the into the program discuss what why that it was and uh, how they used and weaponized that. Go ahead, Matt. Sorry. Oh yeah, massively. Yeah, and I mean, gotta keep in mind uh, these again useful idiot uh, brats uh, provocateurs who were holding these flags are calling for going back to the glory days of dignity under British colonial rule when the British had a ninety nine year lease that ended in 1997 over Hong Kong that was their loots and spoils from the opium wars where they destroyed and annihilated uh, so much of China by design under the opium the opium trade and the growth of HSBC came out of that. So these kids wanted to go back to the, the days of British controlled democracy in Hong Kong, but the fact is there never was such a thing. There was never any electoral process in British controlled Hong Kong and there were many cases of the British shooting down dozens, if not hundreds at times, protesters calling for a better way in Hong Kong in the 1950s and the 1960s. So there was no such thing. Now, <clears throat> again, this is this is media brainwashing, but this, this was what was attempted to disrupt uh, China and, and break apart China as an integrated sovereign nation state. Um, let's jump now to Again, even more recently, 2023, now in Georgia, just like in Ukraine in 2003, you had the National Endowment for Democracy, again, overseen by Victoria Nuland, and many, many, many freaks affiliated with the CIA who first brokered the first color revolution called the Rose Revolution that installed a Soros puppet named Saakashvili into the, the, the technocratic presidency of, of Georgia, overthrowing an elected government, and, to, and that was done. that was done then. Oh, yes, the, 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 the Rose Revolution. Yes, let's not forget the Rose Revolution. And that's where the term color revolution, part of the techniques, why they give it that term, is that there's usually some symbol and a color that are supposed to cathartically um, suck in or, 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 or shape the, the mob th yeah. that would be then corralled to be like, like dogs of war or chaos 
to disrupt the the organizational structure of whatever government you want to overthrow. But that figure of a of a symbol, whether a rose, whether a, a color or a bit of both or a, a fist, uh, but usually a color, is something which is done as far as like um, a hypnotic brainwashing operation, sort of a spell that was uh, the product of a lot of years of subtle investigations into mass herd behavior. So that that's something we're, we're going to also look at a little bit more. And more recently now, Georgia is facing this yet again with the same front groups now doing it once more since the current Georgian government is not necessarily playing ball with the, the unipolarist agenda for war with Russia. And they're currently calling for, and they've tried to pass a law that demand that foreign government or entities in Georgia that receive foreign government funds register where, where those funds come from. That's all. We do it in the West. But the fact that Georgia as a government now has decided to do it um, has induced this anti-authoritarian movement uh, lighting cars on fire in the streets as we see on the right in the picture there. I mentioned quickly the Sunflower Movement 2014. That was another National Endowment for Democracy funded operation using a Taiwanese front group. Brian Berletic has gone through this at great detail. Oh, yeah. I Brian does a hell of a job, man. An amazing job dismantling this thing. These students got, it wasn't as violent, but these Taiwanese students were still corralled. Uh, basically, they stormed the parliament building and forced the what became the overthrow of the Kuomintang government that was pro-mainland China. They were finalizing an economic integration agreement with mainland China in 2014, just like the Ukrainian government of Yanukovych was finalizing an Eurasian economic union integration policy economically um, at that same time. And uh, that had to be overthrown and was overthrown with this pro-US um, democracy movement, which today is calling for total separate separation and doing big deals with US militarists that want to use Taiwan like they've used Ukraine. So, and I mean, I could have gone into examples of Belarus. Uh, the, the, the president of Belarus has recently stated he he's very much aware of a current operation to do the same thing to Belarus, since Belarus is one of the only European countries currently that is very, very uh, much in alliance with Russia and against the, uh, the push for depopulation. Hungary as well, you know, uh, Samantha Powers was recently just on the ground in, in Hungary organizing these various NED-affiliated groups tied to her role with U.S. aid. So that's another uh, area of the world that's being targeted. Luckily, it had failed more recently in Turkey, where Erdogan had faced down these operations and has come out successful. That's good. We've seen this fail as well in the case of Venezuela, where Guaido, an NED operative, um, failed to be the tool brought in by his controllers in the United States so far. Same thing for Kazakhstan, same for, thing for many countries. The Arab Spring was, by the way, a color revolution. So let's take a moment now that we have like a sense of the pedigree of this thing. U.S. flags, British flags, European Union integration flags, um, associating the five eyes with freedom. That's sort of the, the signs. Now, before we get into what happened in China specifically in the 80s, I want to get a sense of, well, what is the NED per se? What is that? How does this work with George Soros and his Open Society Foundation? So let's do a quick little, little sketch of that. The thing that has to be understood here is the Trilateral Commission, which emerged out of an operation tied to a David Rockefeller-funded um, grouping that had been at the, at the time also funding another organization called the Club of Rome. David Rockefeller was a part of this operation that brought a coup d'etat inside of the United States over the dead body of Bobby Kennedy, earlier John F. Kennedy, and Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X. 
And the Trilateral Commission was set up by Henry Kissinger, Rockefeller, and Zbigniew Brzezinski as the trifecta that would manage this new organizational takeover. Under the Carter administration, every single member except for Carter was a member of, of the executive branch of the government, including the Federal Reserve. People like Paul Volcker were all members of the Trilateral Commission. It's still to this very day a very major organizational unit alongside things like Davos that had also been created around this very same time. Um, as far as coordinating this anti-nation state, pro-depopulation uh, grouping of ideologues. That's what's been shaping the last 50 years. So Samuel P. Huntington was a, um, a member of a task force put together by Zbigniew Brzezinski in 1975, which had shown showcased their research on the governability of democracies in 1975 at a commission project in Kyoto, Japan. Trilateral means simply the three parts of the world that would carve up and, and manage the jurisdictions of the new world order with Britain and the Anglo-American establishment managing uh, one jurisdiction, the Western European zone controlling their own jurisdiction and Japan controlling its own jurisdiction of much of Asia. Um, of course, the... <laughs> The Western Europe had their uh, were 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 charmed and were ne were charmed by some of the promises of being co-controllers of this uh, power, this division of power that had originally been attempted in the 1930s by Hitler, and Hitler's handlers in the Bank of England and, and Wall Street. You know, at the time, the world order was supposed to be divided according to certain fascist fascist regions of the world that would have handlers subservient to this banker's dictatorship. That didn't work out. Japan was at the time supposed to be the handler of the uh, most of the Asiatic races of the world. That again was an aborted plan, but they wanted to try it again. So the, the Trilateral Commission became the instrument. So from this task force, Huntington writes, one might consider means of securing support and resources from foundations, business corporations, labor unions, political parties, civic associations, and where possible and appropriate governmental agencies for the creation of an institute for the strengthening of democratic institutions. What is he talking about? In the context of the, the task force, they're specifically targeting the existence of nation states that are no longer um, suitable for the modern age of technology, that we need a, a higher social engineering uh, structure of controllers at the top managing the new age of of local democracies where people will be given the right to have local influence but nothing that would extend beyond their their immediate environment in that sense things like 15 minute cities become you can sort of see how that's the natural outgrowth of this idea this perversion of democracies acceptable democracies for an oligarchy 1975 is also the year of the church committee frank church committee hearings which revealed the abuses of the CIA to, to the public. It was very shocking for many people. Um, people could still listen to the proceedings of many of the recordings of the church committee hearings in Congress. And things like MK Ultra were made public during this time. Things like Project Mockingbird, the CIA control of media, journalism, and televised was also made public. The role of CIA operations for regime change, overthrowing of, of governments you don't like was made public during this time. The assassination of people like John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Fred Hampton were also made public during the um, a subcommittee on assassinations that was an out outgrowth of the church committee in 1976. 
Um, so there were COINTELPRO, the, the, the FBI infiltration of civil rights and anti-imperial groupings uh, during the Cold War was also made public during the church committee hearing. So it looked really bad. It looked really bad for the CIA. It looked really bad for the FBI and the broader Five Eyes complex that these are parts of. So a sort of rebranding was needed, a, a, a need to repackage those techniques that had to still be used, but had to be now used under a new sort of veneer. And what does Huntington, speaking on behalf of his boss, Zbigniew Brzezinski, call for? Utilizing the front groups of business corp business corporations, labor unions, political parties, blah, 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 um, to promote this type of uh, new paradigm. 1979, this thing takes a big milestone. You have what's called the American Freedom Foundation created. Um, Bill Casey is a big player, um, big player at the, at the CIA, big per, a big player who makes this, brings this into reality under Jimmy Carter and, and Zbigniew, his, his national security advisor. Um, the National Freedom Foundation starts for the first time creating an umbrella group with government funding that would then be um, directed towards promoting democracy internationally. At the same time as this is being created, you have the Open Society Foundation also being created by George Soros. George Soros had made a lot of money as the world's, I think he's the first hedge fund manager, money he got in 1968 by Evelyn de Rothschild Bank uh, provided the seed capital for quantum management, the hedge fund that would become part of a new class of pirates under the age of deregulation and speculation of the 1970s, speculating primarily against currencies. So things that would have been impossible in the age of fixed exchange rates that had existed before 1971. And as people should know, if you have global fixed exchange rates, you have a relative stability on what the value and the pricing of the, or what the value of the US dollar is gonna be for five years, for 10 years, it's not gonna vary that much because it's tied to um, values that are in the real world more than anything else. And, um, and that's how you had a viable industrial economy for 25 years after World War II. You didn't have speculation on spot markets, futures markets, it didn't really exist. Because um, the real economy is what shaped the value of money per se. So in the new age where deregulation and the dollar was floated onto the floating exchange rate, all of a sudden the random, the, 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 um, the, the animal spirits, as some call it, of the marketplace became what increasingly determined the value of, of dollars, of currencies, international as well as the U.S. And increasingly also thus commodities, oil, other things that had no real bearing on the real world uh, productive process. And in that type of world, the creatures like George Soros were able to thrive, creating money on gambling principles of the casino Las Vegas ideology, but doing it in a way that involves hurting governments in a form of new economic warfare, where you could speculate against the, the currency of a government not behaving according to the globalization and hurt them, take them down and absorb them back into the rules of the game um, until they, they learn correct behavior. So Soros, with his fortune, created a, a front group, a, an organization that worked and interfaced very closely with the, what became now the American Freedom Foundation. Um, and in America, the American Freedom Foundation spearheaded an act passed by Reagan, who was a bit of a useful idiot on this front, called the National Endowment for Democracy Act, with $31 million of US taxpayer funding, 
passed through uh, four, four principled organizations, one of which being an AFL-CIO Free Trade Union Institute, the other one being the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Center for Private Enterprise, another being the International Republican Institute, and the last being the International Democratic Institute. And obviously, Freedom House was always there, Freedom House being a subsidiary of NED. The National Endowment for Democracy itself began operating in throughout the 80s in Hungary, and we're going to see a lot of countries. One of the, the key figures who controlled this organization, it was actually um, Carl Gershman, I, I believe, who actually said this, but David Ignatius uh, cited this in an interview, a quote by Gershman. David Ignatius was also an, a, a co-founder and interim head of the, the NED, who said in 1991, a lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA. So they just openly say it. They bragged about it. They didn't. And, and we're going to see some examples. But I think more one thing to also hold in mind on top of the, the, the structure I've just outlined, the structure of the, the machine of color revolution is the ideology. What was the, the intellectual wiring shaping and animating the behavior of this beast? To, see, to understand this, people could watch How to Start a Revolution. It's a, a fluff piece promoting uh, this particular uh, figure named Gene Sharp, who's staring at you right there. He looks a little bit like, uh, he's got the eye line of a Zbigniew Brzezinski. But they did work very closely together. Now, Gene Sharp is somebody who, I believe he won a Nobel Peace Prize or something. He is a leading light, a guiding ideologue, and a guru of color revolutions. His material has been serving as the handbooks for every color revolution that has been done in the past 40 years. Um, we're going to see a few of those. He is somebody who has worked for 30 years at the Center for, I mean, I think he's dead now, but he worked for 30 years that's at the Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. The center was known otherwise as the CIA at Harvard. That's while it was actually, it was created in the 1960s. It was created by people, um, one of its co-founders is Henry Kissinger. Another co-founder was McGeorge Bundy. Another co-founder was James Perkins, a man who would become the head of the CIA. Uh, Robert Bowie is another figure, Zbigniew Brzezinski is a co-founder and a teacher at Harvard at CIA, a CIA at Harvard's Samuel Huntington, Dean Rusk. Um, Dean Rusk was at the time the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, James Perkins was the head of the Carnegie Corporation and uh, president of Cornell University and a director at Chase Manhattan, the, the David Rockefeller Bank. Um, Kissinger himself at the time was the head of the Rockefeller, or uh, he was a director at the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, yeah, sorry, it was Bowie, who was a director of the CIA later on, um, working on the China ticket. And um, oh, Dean Rusk. Dean Rusk is himself a, a Rhodes Scholar. You know, he was a Rhodes Scholar who played a big role controlling and managing the Vietnam War, as well as the earlier uh, Korean War. Mick George Bundy is somebody who himself was also one of the major players behind the, the transformation of the USA into an empire, an Anglo-American empire. But at the same time, under the Ford Foundation, he also organized the anti-Vietnam War movements. Interesting way that this gang counter-gang game is played. All, very important to hold that in mind. This center also, which is where Henry Kissinger taught, and this is where people, a, a certain young German uh, student named Klaus Schwab was studying when he was um mentored by henry and became uh, kissinger and became a cardboard cutout for a new organization also created around the same time that the uh, the trilateral commission was being set up the world economic forum klaus schwab 
was also at the this particular center of international affairs at Harvard. It coordinates with a subgroup called the Albert Einstein Institute, which Gene Sharp is a leading figure within. It itself was um, created in the early 60s, at, at right after JFK was murdered, through the the psychological uh, uh, sorry the special operations office at the CIA and the chief of psychological warfare was the overseer of this new organization that was called Project Camelot. Um, it, the idea was, in its own words, to manage global politics and usher in global, stable change towards an American-led world order. The idea of soldier in the state, the idea of the clash of civilizations promoted by um, Samuel P. Huntington and Sir Bernard Lewis, who also worked with this group, is all part of this idea of creating um, a new path. Basically, um, yeah, it's a it's a Pax Americana, right? The idea of a new global world empire, which would itself be kind of like a fake U.S. empire, and I say fake because it would have been just like the empire of uh, Nazism had the Germans succeeded in the original plan of creating a Nazi-led world order. Was Germany in charge of any of the policies of that world order? Not really. Hitler himself was a complete um, product. Of, uh, of British brainwashing at Tavistock, where Hitler was, uh, was, was deconstructed in 1912 and 1913, along with Rudolf Hess. His entire machine was funded by the Rockefeller, the, du the Rockefeller machine, the DuPonts, the JP Morgans, the, uh, the city of London, the Bank of England. All of these oper operations and industrialists who were themselves just feudalists. They weren't, I don't even like calling them industrialists or capitalists, they weren't that, it's, it's, a, it's a scarecrow. They were feudalists utilizing a capitalist veneer, if anything, but they were feudalists first and foremost. Um, Hitler would not have been possible were it not for this artificial support. Um, it was, and so that's sort of the role that the neocon-run um, USA would have played in this type of ideology of a, of a, of a US-led, you know, new American century. All that to say, Gene Sharp is the guy. And why? Why are they doing this? I mentioned feudalism. Henry Kissinger laid out his NSSM 200, and I say this because it's going to play into what happens in China with the one-child policy. Henry Kissinger and his NSSM 200 declassified in 1989. It was published in 1974 as a rewiring of U.S. foreign policy. He says it clearly and loud. Is the U.S. prepared to accept food rationing to help people who cannot, will not control their population growth? The U.S. economy will require large and increasing amounts of minerals from abroad, especially from less developed countries. That fact gives U.S. enhanced interests in political, economic, and social stability of the supplying countries. Wherever a lessening of population pressures through reduced birth rates can increase the prospects for such stability, population policy becomes relevant to resource supplies and to the economic interests of the United States. Although population pressure is obviously not the only factor involved, these types of frustrations are much less likely under conditions of slow or zero population growth. Think the uh, Club of Rome's Beyond Growth Conference currently happening and, and that was keynoted by Ursula van der Leyen this week. Um, the idea was to, to destroy the ethos, the Judeo-Christian ethos 
of the self-perfectibility of the species capable of recognizing future problems and acting creatively on those problems with solution concepts, discoveries, eurekas, and their transformation in the form of new technologies that would allow us to leap beyond the limits to growth as a good thing. The former Judeo-Christian ethics saw that being fruitful to, and, and multiplying is a mandate not just of the moral system, but of the economic principles of, this, of the world as a whole, to both grow in quantity, but also in quality of life and quality of mind and quality of dignity were all part of what made America possible and made America good and viable, or any nation for that matter. So this is what had to be destroyed. This is what John F. Kennedy and his brother represented that had to be annihilated. This is what Kissinger took aim at along with those who he worked with. So what this is known as is Neo-Malthusianism. This is today known as the Neo-Malthusian revival that had happened uh, at this time of the paradigm shift, right? The counterculture, some call it. What was the counterculture? It was the attack on the culture. What was the culture that was being attacked? Don't trust anyone over 30. The nuclear family, the idea of right and wrong, those basic values that had been, you know, in existence for thousands of years, that had to all go. In the new age of sex, drugs, rock and roll, hallucinogenics, all brought brought to us by the loving patriots at the CIA through MK Ultra exposed at the church committee hearings, but that people didn't really quite uh, recognize, di did not disappear, but only got stronger after 1975. The Neo-Malthusians took the form, and, and Kissinger promoted this massively, as did David Rockefeller in the Trilats, in the form of the limits to growth ideology, that we now had to save nature from humans and human economic activity. That must be the new value. Move from a productive society to a conservation society and make people so disgusted with their, with human nature by showcasing, by, by inflaming the most sloppy, consumer-driven, destructive uh, behavior in humanity under globalization, where everything goes, make people so disgusted with their freedoms that they create such a mess, which they will force them to beg for a supranational regime to bring in order out of chaos. That was always the intended idea behind limits to growth brought forth and, and essentially what you see on the left is the Malthusian mathematical formula for population control and why an enlightened elite of scientific engineers must always control population levels where the, the formula by Malthus was that population will always grow geometrically, whereas fo food production will only grow at best arithmetically. And thus you can forecast with these trends into the future where the population will over exceed the means of supporting and act preventatively on such future crises by encouraging famine, war, other forms of disease, which Malthus lays out in great detail in his first edition of his essays on population. And I'm sure he was rewarded handsomely by his patrons at the British East India Company, who he worked for as a teacher of the British Haleybury College. Now, this went out of favor for many years because people saw through the American uh, lead, the, the American spirit and example of republicanism, that a different way existed to do things that involved leaping beyond the limits to growth, as I just outlined. And populations would grow, but so would resources as new discoveries were infused and brought into uh, the economic system. So people stopped paying much respect to Malthus for a long time, but the oligarchy never let go of Malthus. They just tweaked it and tweaked it and refined it, repackaged Malthus, and then revived him in the neo-Malthusian um, computer age of the early 70s 
which is what you see on the right, is more variables pro that were put into new binary computing tech, um, promoted by Alexander King at the Club of Rome and Aurelio Pache, who were brought into the to Davos in 1973, overseen and sponsored by Prince Be Prince Bernhard of the Bilderberger Group. The Bilderberger Group having also been created by these same nests in 1954. Bilderberg, uh, Bernhard himself having been a head of the House of Orange of the Netherlands, working closely with Prince Philip, his bosom buddy and, and co-pervert um, um, from uh, Great Britain. And uh, these guys created things like the World Wildlife Fund, the 1001 Nature Trust in the 1960s in order to, again, move the value system to protect nature from humans. And the idea of these uh, graphs that, that the Club of Rome promoted was that unless we encourage depopulation like Kissinger laid out in NSSM 200, uh, we're going to have a population crisis by two, the year 2000 and there will we'll all be dead. The 14 countries outlined by Kissinger include Ethiopia, Mexico, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Egypt, uh, many others who wanted to modernize. China was for, first and foremost in Kissinger's mind, which is part of what Kissinger was thinking about when he went in to bring in his ideal or his plan for making China the producer society with a broad slave slave class, a slave production class that would then produce cheap labor goods exported to the West, and the West would no longer produce the things we used to produce. We would just become the the, the consumers. And the Chinese would be overseen by a new regime of technocrats educated in the West, brainwashed by Milton Friedman and other Western transhumanists who would then manage their, their slaves in that region of the world um, on behalf of the IMF and the other banking structures. That was the, that was the plan. The Club of Rome was what was brought in in 1979 to China to manage and guide the control of what became the one-child policy, a precondition for China receiving the factories that China desperately needed to start solving its poverty issues. Because the reality was China conducted a, mass of, a massive self-mutilation under the Gang of Four during the Cultural Revolution. It didn't do any services to itself, it harmed itself. And as I've always gotten the point across to people, um, China's cultural revolution coincided with the Western cultural revolution. Don't trust anybody over 30, right? Destroy the four old, destroy the old and corrupt and archaic institutions. That's what was hitting both the baby boomers of the West and the Chinese youth of the 60s. The difference was in China, once Mao died and once the Gang Four were all put in prison, there was a, a rehabilitation. They stopped their cultural revolution. The population was granted and encouraged to, uh, to criticize the Cultural Revolution. There was a healing process for the most part and a fight was begun against this deep state embedded in the Chinese governing class. Hence the Gang of Four were put in prison for a reason. In the West, we never stopped our cultural revolution. Ours just continued in its own Western veneer over a few more generations to our current crisis where people think that there's infinite gen genders and uh, eating bugs is going to stop the climate from changing. That's that's the consequence of us never having changed our um, cultural revolutionary trajectory. So this was what was done. China hurt themselves with the one child policy. It is known and today China is trying to heal from that by now lifting it to three children per family, putting a lot of monetary incentives to people who want to have as many uh, have the three kids. And soon that's going to be lifted to no limits on any kids and 
This only applied to the Han Chinese of China. The Uyghurs and other minority groups never had any such one-child policy, but this was brought in by the Club of Rome. It was not a Chinese population control policy. And I emphasize this because so many people who I talk to who like a lot of what I say think that the, the guideline of the world government, of the Davos world government of depopulation, population control is shaped by the big bad Chinese CPCs. Look at what China did in 79 to uh, throughout the 80s. They don't realize this was brought into China. China was a third world country at this time. Okay, you, this is not the agency that then or today controls anything of anything that has caused our lives to hurt. They have been trying to survive in a very bad um, set of rules of the game shaped by what I'm talking about. These are four characters who play a big role in what becomes Tiananmen Square. Milton Friedman immediately is brought in um, under the figure of Zhao Jiang. Zhao Jiang is somebody who George Soros works very closely with, who sets up two think tanks in China and becomes premier in 1980 or 1979. Um, all of the core population reduction fanatics of China and the Chinese technocrats are all supported and cultivated under the reign of Zhao Jiang. By 1987, Zhao Jiang becomes the, the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, the highest position one can achieve in China. That is a Soros tool. Milton Friedman is being brought in during the liberalizing age of privatization market reforms in the 1980s. Alvin Toffler, the guy, the second to the left, is also spending many, many voyages. He's a futurist, a transhumanist who's coming into China meeting with Zhao Jiang's Kissinger, we've talked about, um, George Soros sets up two front groups. One is called the uh, the Fund for the Reform and Opening Up of China, and the other one is uh, the Institute for Economic and Structural Reform. This is the one which is overseen and headed by Chen Yitzi, the personal advisor and assistant of Zhao Jiang. The NED sets up two branch offices in Beijing and Shanghai in uh, the 1980s. This is Zhao Jiang arm in arm with Reagan being celebrated in, by, by Western press agencies as the Gorbachev reformer of China. Um, this guy is, is preparing and speaking openly about doing exactly what is done to Russia in the 1980s under first Gorbachev and then Yeltsin. And this entire takeover of Russia, I think people generally know, was a Western operation to uh, to destroy Russia from the face of the earth to do what what Leon what what Trotsky had attempted to do on behalf of people like Armand Hammer, the billionaire American speculator um, in the 1920s, or maybe at the time hundred you know millionaire multimillionaire, which at the time was you know a very different idea of money of value, but this was the key figure, Armand Hammer, who was brought in by Trotsky to own up and buy up the former state enterprises of the Romanov dynasty. And that was called the new economy policy of the 1920s Russia. Now, the difference there is that, you know, um, well, Trotsky was kicked out. The nationalists, the nationalists of Russia organized the hell out of the patriots and people who were uh, encircling Stalin, who didn't want to destroy their, their society. Stalin kicked out Trotsky. He avoided a few assassination attempts and went to war with this Trotskyist deep state structure embedded in every aspect of the Russian economy. 
which uh, continued to try regime change, was working and collaborating with Nazis, with Japanese, with Japanese fascists, British uh, fascists in London and America. Trotsky was the guy who was in New York accumulating the money for the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. He was the guy who was overseen by uh, the second-in-command of MI6, Cloud Dancy, who was the founder of U.S. military intelligence, Cloud Dancy, British Deputy Chair of, the, of MI6, 1917, founds U.S. military intelligence. I said that twice for a reason. He was the handler of Trotsky, who got Trotsky out of a Canadian jail where he was sitting for a month after after leaving the USA to go back to Russia. It was Cloud Dancy who did that. Cloud Dancy sets up the organization that becomes the Black Chamber, that becomes the NSA, that becomes the basis of the U.S. Five, or the British-directed Five Eyes in America, Cloud Dancy. That guy, and again, I'm just re-emphasizing re this because people think of the American empire and they don't realize what is actually going on. So why did they? Why did George Bush Sr. call um, the reforms, the market reforms of Russia, op Operation Hammer? It was named after Armand Hammer in honor of Armand Hammer of the 20s. That's what exactly was done under Yeltsin, Gorbachev and Yeltsin to Russia where they created a technocratic multi, so like a super sociopathic, billionaire class of, of Western-directed oligarchs in the 90s that would then carve up Russia. Zbigniew Brzezinski wrote about this and made maps and graphs of a, of a balkanized Russia into micro-federations controlled by the IMF in the 1990s. This is what the plan was for China. This is what Zhao Jiang was deployed to do as a, as a Chinese Trotsky, a Chinese um, Yeltsin. So, just to get across a statement by Zhao Jiang, I believe this was at a trilateral commission summit that happened in that in 1983 in Beijing, overseen by David Rockefeller. Um, Zhao Jiang is quoted in this um, article or in the speech saying uh, October 9th, 1983, whether we call it the fourth industrial revolution or call it the third wave, these writers, and here he's referring to people like um, Kissinger, Alvin Toffler, big time, all believe that Western countries in the 1950s and 60s reached a high degree of industrialization and are now moving into an information society. That is a society where you just, you, you could just have information. You don't have to have industrial production. You could just have everything based on ideas and information um, through the internet and internet technologies. And that would be the basis of the economy. Hey, you, want, you want to know something funny, Matt, right? Yeah, it's an interesting quote, especially what says that, you know, the 1950s and 60s, which a high degree of industrialization are moving towards the information society. What most people don't realize the information society only benefits a centralized government. Think about yeah. that for a second. Right. An information obsessed society only benefits that only benefits the central banking type structure, only benefits a financial or an in, or, or an economy. That is not based on physical production, but that which is based on paper. Because then they mm -hmm. trick you saying data is important. You know, that's why Facebook could have a, a greater value, a stock valuation than ExxonMobil, but yet it produces mm -hmm. nothing. Yeah. It's the quackery of the age we're living in in the West. Go ahead, Matt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's exactly it. And they they neglect the fact that it it's it's a it's a smokescreen for empire because no matter what, if you're gonna have uh, any type of system requires production. It just means you're not going to be in a society that does your own production. You're going to be too busy, um, sucked in and controlled by some by some matrix cybernetics grid of information 
consumption and information management that you won't realize that you are dependent physically upon a massive global network of slave labor. You just might not physically see those 40,000 children mining cobalt in rare earths in Africa who are producing the material for the solar panels and electric car batteries that you think are somehow coming out of thin air or being plucked off of trees because people have been so dumbed down to not recognize the real science of the physical reality supporting their economy and their systems. So it's always been a fraud. Um, yeah, and, and so to have information is fine, but the information system, the internet, it itself emerged out of an industrially productive orientation towards doing things in the real universe like the space program through which the impetus was given to generate the discoveries and the insights and new technologies that that gave rise to the satellites, the GPSs, the different fiber optics and other forms of communications that were always supposed to be just a subservient support base for an industrially productive economy. So it's like consumption. You can't have consumption if you don't justify it with production. You can't consume without creating. If you just think you can have just information or just consumption without the, 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 the causal driver of what makes either possible, you're, you become stupid and you become enslaved and manipulated in ways you might not understand. So Zhao Jiang is of this, you know, and he's pushing for this idea of taking the four modernizations of Zhou Enlai, of uh, Deng Xiaoping, because there's a fight around this concept of the four modernizations where he talks about for us and for the future of the four modernizations, this is both an opportunity and a challenge. He's taking it and trying to say the four modernizations doesn't mean what Deng Xiaoping or Zhou Enlai, the former premier, a really solid figure of China's history, who also died in 1975, but actually a very good and reasonable man. Um, it doesn't mean what they meant. It doesn't mean the productive powers of labor increasing to meet the needs of human beings. He, What he's saying with his technocratic um, cybernetics freaks who he works for is that no, the fourth, the four modernization simply means modernizations in uh, cyber technology, cyberspace, biotechnology, bioengineering, only things that involve tools that might allow a masterclass to control slaves. Those technologies are good. Any other or entertainment technologies are fine too, but anything that actually empowers us to have stronger, more productive societies, more intelligent, um, specialized people with knowledge, that that's not what what is being permitted here. Alvin Toffler, just to get across, because this guy loves Toffler. Okay, the third wave. People underestimate how important this or influential this um, this thing was. Toffler himself came out of the net networks of Tavistock, uh, of Tavistock. He worked for several groups tied to Stanford University um, in California, which is one of the main operating controlling nodes of Tavistock in America. Things like the Esalen Institute, which uh, Toffler was affiliated with in, in, in a variety of ways in the 1960s and 70s. This is this this these play very important roles. But so what does Toffler say in his third wave, 1978? He writes of this new era that uh, Zhao Jiang and Gorbachev and others are bringing online. This, he says this new era, this era, this, oh, sorry, this era currently that we're living in now is scree screeching to a halt. Industrial civilization is now in a state of terminal crisis and a new radically different civilization is emerging to take its place on the world stage. We are swiftly entering a new, more sophisticated state of evolutionary development based on far more advanced yet 
more appropriate technologies than any known so far. Of course, windmills, solar panels, these are the appropriate technologies of a Mori Strong or a Kissinger because they're appropriate because they don't change nature. They just, they don't have any human impact on nature when you have windmills or solar panels. We are told, although we, when you look at the mining, <laughs> the, the mining fields and the destruction of nature that way, or the, uh, the, the massive um, unrecyclable solar panel uh, or, or electric battery uh, dump dump zones that are going to be there for millions of years. It's obviously a lie there too, but that's the that's the theory. Um, this leap to a new phase of history is bringing with it new energy patterns. Again, he's entirely talking about green energy, new geopolitical arrangements, new social institutions, new communications and information networks, new belief systems, symbols, and cultural assumptions. Thus, it must generate wholly new political structures and processes. In this sense, the breakdown of government as we have known it, which is to say representative government, is chiefly a consequence of obsolescence. Simply put, the political technology of industrial age is no longer appropriate technology for the new civilization taking form around us. Our politics are obsolete. These people talk like this. They talk like these are evolutionary forces of nature that you cannot resist. Yeah, it's because bullshit. they're forces it, of nature. It, it's um, crazy. Yeah. It's yeah. Crazy. So the idea of representative government, industrial civilization, this is obsolete now because it's that's the second wave, and we're it's out of the second you, wave. Matt, it's everything yeah. you'd want to say if you want to create a new neo-feudalistic society of serfs and lords. This is exactly the kind of drivel and narrative you'd want to peddle. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, don't don't resist, plebe. All you do, all you can do, surf, is adapt to the new reality uh, that the future demands come into being. Um, now, the first wave, just so people demystify this, so it's very clear. It's very simplistic and stupid, but this is essentially it. He, these these creatures say the first wave was the agricultural feudal pre nation state uh, society. That's the first wave. The second wave is the industrial democratic national wave that emerged out of the, the golden renaissance of Italy. And that wave is ending now. And now the third age, the third wave, is the information techno-feudal post-nation state age of global governance. Um, the age of Aquarius, as some called it, you know, or some still do call it. The age of, of Pisces was the age we were told of reason, morality, Christ, Socrates, Confucius, that age is obsolete in the new age of Aquarius, the dawning of the age of Aquarius, the age of feeling our way to truth. You know, if you feel you, you've got you're a unicorn this morning or you're a, you want to be called a G or, or whatever, to, 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 then that's just as true for you as uh, as being considered a hippopotamus would be for your neighbor who might think that he's really a hippopotamus. Um, so let's go back to this. This is that's the insanity of the the, the Western culture revolution. China fought back against that. They've banned, like the Chinese government, just look at what they've done. They have banned uh, the effeminization of men in media. They have illegalized, uh, a, they, they, they've created quotas of three hours a week for kids playing video games. Um, they've, they've popularized in their media, in their, in their movies, in their shows, classical culture and classical traditional values. Uh, the stories of the 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 ancient Song Dynasty of the 
the the the Tang Dynasty, like all of their shows are based on making the classics, making classical civilization and the Renaissance cool for young people. That's what they're doing. Yeah, but if they do that, how can I be a social media influencer on TikTok and on Instagram, man? Well, how am I, how there am I actually are TikTokers in China who are actually yeah, making but... a huge career out of out of making the classics cool. Yeah, but really I don't want to do that. I want to like do like beauty videos and the latest fad, and, and you yeah, know, I, I want know. to, uh, you know, I want to like get on. Uh, what about my Twitch streams where I'm playing video games for twelve hours a day, and and other kids are watching me play twelve hours of video games per day? What about my League of Legends and my World of Warcraft, Matt? Isn't that important? What a waste of of potential! Eh? It's so it's terrible. So oh, it kills me. <laughs> uh, all right, so <laughs> despair for that that generation. But anyway, this is what we have to intervene on, right? So we have to get across that this is the lost generation that's being thrown thrown into the garbage heap of, of cybernetics um, and and gender fluidity. So okay, back to back to um, the Tiananmen Square color revolution, the Tiananmen Square Maidan, as I call it. WikiLeaks 2011 had a batch, a drop of classified U.S. cables from the U.S. Embassy on t- in from Beijing in um, 1989 which was overseen by a skull and bonesman CIA operative friend of George Bush senior named James Lilly, who was also a coordinator of Tiananmen Square. Um, but that classified set of documents demonstrated, and this is the, the telegraph that ran this thing uh, over 10 years ago, noting that uh, these cables proved for the first time ever that there was no actual violent crackdown by the Chinese government that killed tons of young innocent protesters. Didn't actually happen. In these cables, you have the um, interviews uh, that were made by officials at the U.S. Embassy of the Chilean ambassador and Chilean diplomats who were on the ground who all testified that there actually was no massacre at Tiananmen Square, Tiananmen Square being the the, the area right in front of the Forbidden Palace. Um, there there was violence to a certain extent that was, as we're going to go through, uh, instigated by provocateurs. Um, inside of Tiananmen Square, a little bit, but not that much, not nearly as much as you would think. The actual core of the violence, though, 99% of the actual violence happened not at Tiananmen Square. That's a mythology. It happened seven kilometers away from Tiananmen Square, um, <clears throat> which is where you had a, a second protest set itself up in the early parts of June. And this thing in Tiananmen Square was going on from April uh, 18th with the um which was originally just an assembly of young people honoring the uh the life of the chairman of the, the chinese communist party who had died uh hu yaobing he had died he was a reformer i don't think he was such a great guy but basically it was originally just people going there to honor this guy and uh when you had such a a, a, a grouping of thousands of young bodies, I think certain um, social engineers started licking their chomps and realizing how they could inflame and direct this. Um, maybe this is our this is probably going on uh, before that, but this was a good catalyzer that got the ball rolling. Now, seven kilometers away, you had a bunch of laborers who were striking as well for basically uh, wanting to regulate the uh, the, mar- uh, the 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 prices because there was about twenty three percent inflation on goods, on food. A lot of the market reforms being done by the Milton Friedmanites that were that were opening up the markets to speculation were causing hell on the pricing and the value of commodities and basic goods that people needed. So obviously there was good reason to strike, good reason for that. Um, a lot of the laborers were, were there 
um, peaceful as, as well as the students. Most of the students were peaceful. But then you had the provocateur rioters, and they were rioters, and they were very well organized. Um, that's where things got fiery, seven kilometers away from Tiananmen. The Vancouver Sun on September 17th, 1992, ran an article um, assessing what happened, where the Vancouver Sun writes, the Central Intelligence Agency had sources among Tiananmen Square protesters. And for months before the protest, the CIA had been helping student activists form the anti-government movement. One of Gene Sharp, who I spoke about, one of his key collaborators at the Albert Einstein Institute and um, CIA at Harvard was a fellow named Colonel Robert Helvey. He was a Defense Intelligence Agency officer. He worked at the Pentagon. He was based in Hong Kong training most of the leaders of the student groups. He was also somebody who would had uh, been on the ground in Czechoslovakia in 1989, organizing the Velvet Revolution. He was on the ground um, in uh, Ukraine in 2004, organizing the Pora, first uh, color revolution in Ukraine. He was organizing the Otpor in Serbia in 1998. He was on the ground organizing uh, with Gene Sharp in uh, Vietnam, Myanmar, in uh, Georgia, the Kamara movement. That, over, that brought in Saakashvili in 83, uh, uh, 2003. So this guy, uh, Colonel Robert Helvey, people can like listen to some of his presentations on uh, YouTube. It's he's, he's a disgusting figure. But he was there in Hong Kong shaping the leaders of this movement. That's a picture of him right there um, on the upper left-hand side. To the left-left side is a, a picture of Gene Sharp's book, Dictatorship to Democracy, a conceptual framework for liberation. Um, utilizing some of the techniques of Gandhi, of Martin Luther King, except without any of the substance of what made Gandhi or Martin Luther King work. So they like the techniques of utilizing um, social activism, human rights, uh, sometimes you peaceful movements of putting your body into things, but not always. That's Gene Sharp on the upper right. Bottom left is uh, James Lilly, who I mentioned, a Skull and Bones CIA uh, officer who was a U.S. ambassador to China. Over there are uh, two intelligence agents who were photographed by uh, the Chinese on several occasions in Tiananmen Square, organizing the leaders of the student, uh, student groups. Um, on the one end, you have John Promfett, and the other fellow you have it, you have there is Alan Pesseng. Alan Pesseng is somebody who had worked at the time for The Voice of America, a NED CIA propaganda piece back then, just as it is today, that we, that had, was created during the, the Cold War to coordinate and even give instructions to the protesters on how to um, carry out your protest. Um, John Promfett now works at the Washington Post. At the time, he was an, um, an AP correspondent. Again, these guys are just on the train. And it, you saw similar things in Hong Kong 2019 with uh, similar um, white organizers of these protests at every single major event that had, especially those that took that became violent on the ground. One of the key protesters, the, 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 a girl who described herself as the, uh, the supreme commander of the students, <laughs> very humble young girl trained uh, as well by these these creeps gave an interview um in a documentary that was called gateway of heavenly peace a 1995 documentary and uh, the interview was with philip cunningham 
that's where it was aired. She, uh, Chai Ling, that's, that's her right over there. She, she's now, she's been a U.S. citizen. She got out of China right after uh, Tiananmen Square went sour. Um, she writes, or she spoke, and people can watch this documentary on YouTube, but she literally says, verbatim, this is exactly what she says in the interview. The students, and this is, this is before June 4th, so this is, this is still a, few, a, a week before June 4th happens. She writes, or says, the students keep asking, what should we do next? What can we accomplish? I feel so sad because how can I tell them that what we are actually hoping for is bloodshed for the moment when the government has no choice but to brazenly butcher the people, that is the students. Only when the square is awash with blood will the people of China open their eyes. Only then will they, be, will they really be united. But how can I explain this to my fellow students? I cannot say all this to my fellow students. I cannot tell them straight out that we must use our blood and our lives to call on the people to rise up. Of course, the students would be willing, but they are still such young children. And what is truly sad is that some students and famous well-educated people are working hard to keep the government, to, to help the government, to prevent it from taking such measures. For the sake of their selfish interests and their private dealings, they are trying to cause our movement to collapse and get us out of the square before the government becomes so desperate that it takes action. This woman's insane. And, and they literally said right afterwards when he asks her if she would be willing to die um, in Tiananmen Square, you could listen to the whole uh, interview. She literally says, no, I would not be willing to die uh, because the, the movement needs leaders. Oh. What if I die? and give my life if I if the leadership disappears. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it makes perfect sense, Maddie. Yes. So, ah, and you know, again, self-professed supreme commander of the, the the students. Now, if you actually look at most of the pictures, uh before things started getting violent with the provocateurs launching Molotov cocktails uh that really got underway in uh, May 20th. Um most of the the, the relationship between the PLA soldiers and the students was really amicable. And even after May 20th, there was a lot of uh, collaboration and support between the student protesters and the, the soldiers. Get, you, know, you got pictures of the students feeding the soldiers. In some of their cases, they're singing together. They're, 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 they're talking. The students, when things start getting violent by the provocateurs, there's, there's a lot of different images of stories of accounts of, of the majority of students who are not violent, just like in the case of the Maidan or any of these color revolutions, the majority of people are not violent people. They just want a better economic situation and they they are protecting the, the soldiers uh, from the, the most violent flame-throwing um, youth fanatics who are deployed to, to turn the place upside down, to inspire, to force the government to react, as Chai Ling says, with violence and blood in order to justify um, essentially a regime change, ideally a foreign intervention, like we saw with Libya. So this is some of the the, the types of images. And I, I some pictures here are gonna be disturbing and I want them to be I want them to be seen because it makes it more real for people. These are some samples of that area that got really violent seven kilometers away from Tiananmen Square, as I mentioned. Um, where barricades were built in a very military, military organized fashion. 
Uh, buses filled with PLA soldiers were burnt. There were approximately over, uh, two to 300 PLA soldiers that were burned alive and killed by these groupings seven kilometers away from Tiananmen Square. Otherwise, there was, um, in, in as WikiLeaks proves in the cables that were leaked in 2011 by Julian Assange, there was a agreed upon a peaceful end to it, which saw on June 4th, the students at Tiananmen holding hands and leaving Tiananmen Square with no bloodshed. The bloodshed occurred seven kilometers away. Um, over there are some examples of some of the workers lighting on fire one of the tanks. Yep, there's a body right there of one of the soldiers. One of the soldiers strung up, choked to Naked. death, lit on fire uh, next to a, 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 a military bus. Yep. There were thousands of military vehicles lit on fire and destroyed. Many of them, like I said, that had the doors barricaded and the soldiers contained within those vehicles lit on fire and burnt to death. Cooked alive. More examples of tanks that were all cooked. The soldiers themselves, as people on the ground, including the Chilean uh, embassy officials, all noted, uh, never actually had, for the most part, the vast majority of soldiers only had billy clubs and riot gear. They weren't even allowed, like in the case of Ukraine, to carry uh, guns. Yeah, they, had, they had no firearms. No. Now, again, these are these are tanks lit on fire. Here's another case. Of another there was a massacre. Man, yeah, massacre. Ten thousand people. Seems, yeah, it seems to be largely the the Chinese officials that suffered the uh, the biggest uh, torture and death. Two more cases of Chinese um, bodies of Chinese PLA soldiers lit on fire. Um, another case on a staircase and further in the background, um, hung over an overpass. Another uh, soldier hung and uh, lit on fire. So I just I, there's a lot more, unfortunately, and I mean these are these are disturbing pictures. But again, it was not a peaceful protest of the way we are taught in this simplistic fashion. So what happened? Um, you had the Chinese um, not respond the way they were expected to. There was no mass bloodbath at Tiananmen. Um, what happened was there. What, Zhao Ziyang was removed of all of his status as chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. He was called out as a Soros CIA operative. Um, many of his leading allies were put in prison, people who were doing and conducting and coordinating the violent parts of the uh, the operation for regime change, including Miles Guo himself was uh, put in prison. Some faced short, some longer, longer jail sentences. Miles Guo got two years. Um, Zhao Ziyang was put under house arrest where he rotted and died in his memoirs that he leaked out um, to his supporters who were visiting him. Um, he did get these out where he did say that he was going to, in the 1990s, if he were able to become the dictator of China, like sort of a Chinese Pinochet, just like Pinochet, he was going to liberalize completely the Chinese economy, privatize everything just like Yeltsin, completely open up the door for total liberalization. Um, this, is the, the, this is the false idea of liberalism. That is a liberalism, liberalism for a slave that the Zbigniew Brzezinskiites want for the world is a hedonistic idea of freedom and not the type of freedom that comes with responsibility to participate in a representative form of government. That's not the type that they want. They don't want that. So this is what Zhao Ziyang was doing. He was put under house arrest. George Soros had his operations shut down. Chen Yitzi, who oversaw you know, the, the Zhao Ziyang assistant, 
who, who uh, was the head of the Institute for Economic and Structural Reform, avoided an escaped arrest with thousands of other um, provocateurs and coordinators who made it out of mainland China through something known as Operation Yellowbird. This is yep. a, a South China Morning Post article covering uh, what was Operation Yellowbird. It's openly acknowledged. They, they ran um, that first in, um, in, in um, God, what was it, Burma. Burma was the first time they, they did it. And then they basically took every person involved in that whole Burma uh, that attempted a coup and, and revolution in, in Burma and then brought it right over to Hong Kong. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yep. So that, this, this is the thing. It was coordinated by the U.S. Embassy. The U.S. Embassy was hosting and protecting, giving sanctuary to the most violent of these, these protesters for months. And uh, through Hong Kong triads, this is actually from Wikipedia. I just lifted it from Wikipedia. It's, it's just it's that open. Um, it, it's described Operation Yellowbird was a British Hong Kong based operation to help the Chinese dis dissidents who participated in the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989 to escape arrest by the Chinese government by facilitating their departure overseas via Hong Kong. Western intelligence agencies such as Britain's Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, and the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency were involved in the operations. Other contributors included politicians, celebrities, business people, and triad members from Hong Kong, forming the unlikely alliance which sustained the operation for most of its duration. Okay, so Hong Kong triads, MI6, CIA, worked to get these these. Um, operatives out where they lived plush lives, given scholarships at Yale, Harvard. Uh, they were brought into Vancouver, Toronto, New York, given sanctuary here, forming a foreign government nucleus, um, as uh, Gavin Hewitt, a Washington Post journalist, made a point in exile, working always behind uh, or outside of the boundary conditions of China as the first wave of traitor deep state expats working on behalf of the CIA. And I think if you look at things like Epoch Times, look at who controls it, where did things like Falun Gong, New Tang Dynasty come from, you'd probably find a lot of these same operatives who have been here this whole time overseeing acting Chinese on the surface, but like American or British United Empire loyalists like Aaron Burr traders in America, always having a British heart and acting as traders from within. Um, or without, like, um, you know, Benedict Arnold was another one who ended up just like working against America, even after the American Revolution, after he, he switched sides. So it's the same sort of thing. Now, the thing about the, the flux, there's been so far three big fluxes of Chinese traders outside of China who have avoided arrest and imprisonment, and in some cases, execution, since there's a very low tolerance policy in China right now over having traitors inside of the government, especially in the Chinese Communist Party, which is why 4.6 million Chinese officials have been punished under Xi Jinping's crackdown. We're going to go into some examples, but there's been three waves of exoduses. This was the first wave in 1989. The second wave was 1997 when Hong Kong was brought back, was given back from uh, by, uh, by Britain to, to mainland China when the lease expired. And all of those um, uber-rich, corrupt triad affiliates um, from Hong Kong didn't know if they were going to be arrested when uh, Hong Kong would go back to China. And so they preemptively escaped and bought up, you know, basically got sanctuary in Canada and the U.S., mostly Canada, mostly Canada, which is why there's been 100,000 uh, Chinese super-rich who have been driving up the housing market in Canada for the past 25 years. 
the the third wave has been the current wave that has been sparked since 2012 when Xi Jinping began his anti-corruption crackdown. And people like Mao's Guo, but many others have been coming in in, in in droves into the West to avoid arrest. The other thing, um, returning back to where we began, um, Miles Guo, Jimmy Lai, who was the big money bags working always with people like John McCain, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi in Hong Kong. He ran, he, he was the, the owner of Apple Daily that funded the Hong Kong protests in 2014 and 2019. And again, funded last year, or no, yeah, last year, the Tiananmen Square Memorial protests in Hong Kong and has since been arrested um, for basically being a disruptive force that was that's working for Western agents. And he's even given a speech that people can watch on YouTube at a, uh, I think it's a, I forget which, I think it's a Freedom House event where he basically says, if America doesn't come in militarily backing up the the protesters that he's funding in 2019 that he will be in jail and he's freaking out begging these people in washington to follow through on their promises kind of like what saakashvili was begging in 2008 when saakashvili picked a fight with uh, russia and declared war with russia um and he was promised certain things from uh, his neocon sponsors in america that didn't follow through and he was left out hung to dry thank god and it didn't turn into Armageddon. But all that to say, these are just a couple of modern examples of players. Um, now, I mentioned before the um, the crackdown. 4.6 million Chinese Communist Party officials have been punished in the last 10 years. Some examples of these people include Ma Jian, uh, who was given life imprisonment for corruption bribery. He was the vice minister of, the, of public security from 2006 to 2015. Zhao Yunkang, the Minister of Public Security from 2002 to 2007, was given life in prison in 2016. Both of these men who ran effectively what is the Chinese CIA were handlers of Miles Guo. Miles Guo, when he got out of prison in 1993 or in 1994, he was protected massively and supported as he became one of the richest men in China running Zenith Enterprises, a major real estate investment firm and as well the the chinese branch of of morgan morgan banking complex in china this is what he was assigned to manage and to grow into this giant giant behemoth managing a big chunk of the chinese deep state he only was able to do this because of the protection he was given by ma jian and zhou yong kong um both given life in prison where he would be as well if he had not escaped in 2015 to come to america um, another person, chief of staff of Hu Jintao, Ling Jihua, was given life in prison at the same time. Uh, Sun Zhenkai, a member of the Chinese Politburo, one of the most powerful men given life in prison in 2018 for corruption, bribery, and other things, receiving uh, support from foreign governments. Fu Zhenghua, the former justice minister of China, was given life in prison in 2021. Meng Huang, uh, Hong Wei was given 13 years in prison. He was the former Interpol chief of China in 2019. He was given uh, 13 years in prison. There's a big list. Like I said, 4.6 million officials. Um, one of the things that Miles Guo did, as soon as he came to the West, he came with letters of recommendation from Tony Blair, a close friend of Miles Guo, 
uh, that gave him the ability to buy a $60 million penthouse suite in New York upon arrival. Um, he formed things like the Rule of Law Society, the Rule of Law Foundation that bankrolled all of the narratives and the, the major players behind the China Wuhan lab leak uh, story. This is funded and bankrolled. He bankrolled the war room by Steve Ben. Together, he and Steve Ben created the uh, the federal state of New China that has self-professed. It was created in 2020 on the anniversary of Tiananmen Square, and it self-nominated. He self-nominated himself democratically, I guess, as the head of the federal state of New China. He designed the anthem based. He designed the flag based on a modified European Union flag. And um, I mean, they have a catchy, they have a catchy rap song. That's the anthem. He used a catchy, yeah, he bankrolls with all of his money. He takes basically um, famous rappers from China and uh, basically makes them his toys who write music for him that he sometimes even raps terribly, which people can listen to. It's goofy as all sin. It's funny in a sick way. Um, But these are the people who are behind the anti-China psyops that's currently brainwashing most of the reasonable, like the people who would normally be at the forefront of a fight against the Great Reset and depopulation agenda are being misdirected by this operation that works with New Tang Dynasty run by Li Hongji, a self-professed intergalactic messianic figure who's maintaining the balance of good and evil alien forces through that want to steal our bodily fluids and our organs, our juicy organs, and the best organs are the Falun Gong practitioner organs, which is like a sacred thing for these freaks. And he lives on a 400-acre estate in New York, protected by the CIA, yep. picked out by China for obvious reasons because he was deploying in Beijing in 2000, uh, to 1997, um, a provocative organization deploying his so-called peaceful meditators to disrupt the government, shut down the government uh, by blocking all traffic lanes, um, and 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 of course, of course, the Chinese have dealt with centuries of foreign-directed Jesuitical manipulations, utilizing the cover of religious organizations to destroy them from within. They saw this happening yet again. And where does where do they where does this guy Li Hongji go as soon as he's banned from China? To the United States, of course, which is where other people like Falun Falun. Uh, Fatula Gulen, who runs a, a Turkish yep. similar kind of cult with its own deep state operatives that's pseudo-religious inside of Turkey, also was forced to go when he was kicked out of Turkey and has been protected ever since with a multi-billion dollar complex. So now returning back now, one of the major bankrollers, members, and supporters of the federal state of New China is none other than Connie Morgan. Connie Morgan, who was celebrating... Tiananmen Square as a memorial with Miles Guo on one of his channels, the G, whatever they're called, G Spot channels. Yeah, or something. G- GTV. GTV. And uh, defending the Ain't House of Morgan. Yeah. Yeah. So, take down the CCP. <laughs> take down the CCP. They need to re edit that CPC now. So he's got to come up with a new rap song. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're a bunch of idiots, man. I swear. You're a bunch you. of idiots. It's really embarrassing. So I just wanted right. I just wanted to put this whole package in one form, more formal place than what we're used to doing, because I want people to have a resource to make this knowledge real knowledge, not just take my opinion for it, but follow up on the leads. I mean, if they want to take it a little bit deeper, 
I've written a book with, with my wife, with Cynthia, on breaking free of anti-China psyops. We're going to have volume two of anti-China psyops coming up, and we have a whole series of videos debunking the secret Chinese police stations uh, mythology that's been cooked up by an NED front group called Safeguard Defenders. We just put that up, produced by Jason Dahl, a talented filmmaker we've been working with. Um, we're going to have something now on Chinese election interference in Canada as well as in the United States um, that's going to be coming online this week. We're going to have more on the Chinese um, spy balloons. Uh, we're going to have stuff on uh, the Wuhan lab leak. We're going to go into deep dives on all of these things with these multimedia videos, these mini documentaries. But people really need to solidify their real knowledge of who the real enemy is that wants to destroy both China, Russia, and the so the 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 united states all three are targeted for destruction by the very same agencies that are funding miles Guo, that are controlling handling and deploying miles Guo, and other uh useful idiots who are promoting a depopulation agenda and may not even realize it so yeah i just want to, that to be one package excellent stuff man excellent stuff matt thank you so much for joining us today this has been a deep dive into the color revolutions a look behind the curtains as to the modus operandi of the cabal. I can't even use the word deep state anymore because then, you know, um, we get uh, banned and God knows what else. Anyway, folks, thank you all for listening in. Go to CanadianPatriot.org, CanadianPatriot.org, RisingTideFoundation.net, as well as MatthewIret.substack. The links are all in the description box, especially also for the books. With that being said, we're over and out.